Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. You hold the line faithful to duty, confronting our nation's foes with implacable will. A vital element in keeping the peace is our military so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction. You hold the line true to honor, living by a moral code regardless of who is watching. Our surrender will be voluntary because by that time we will have been weakened from within spiritually, morally, and economically. Welcome back to another episode of Holding the Line, a podcast dedicated to the intersection of technology, national security, and policy. I'm your host, retired U.S. Navy Commander Guy Snodgrass. So as I think about this podcast in 2021, we've kind of started off with a lot of what I would say has been our standard fare. We're talking about some of the new technological trends. We've been talking about the rise of artificial intelligence, machine learning, and autonomy, certainly talking about national security and some of the changes that are occurring. That being said, I just wanted to preface where I see this podcast going in 2021, uh, the evolution of how this podcast will continue to mature over time. And some of that is just to really widen the variety of individuals we bring on. So as I've contemplated this year, I've already been reaching out to some uh, individuals from industry, and by that I mean just the greater commercial sector, people who've been CEOs and been wildly successful throughout their careers, uh, actors in Hollywood, people who have had to chart a, uh, a regular path and who basically have their own personal brand, a very strong personal brand, and how they've created that, how they've managed that. So I really want to open the aperture throughout the remainder of this year. Yes, We'll still look at technology and national security and policy, but I'm going to interweave those conversations with some additional ones that we can have with individuals who've really stood out throughout the entirety of their career, what they did to arrive at those positions, but also just as importantly, what they've learned along the way. And I think one of the things and the, the themes I want to continue to explore is kind of this, this consistent look back uh, of what has helped to make people successful. You know, the, this essence of what I wish I knew then. What will be interesting is that as we bring in a wider variety of individuals to the podcast, I think what you'll see is this consistent theme throughout time of the various principles that make individuals successful. And so for me, a lot of this excitement will just be around uh, personal leadership, around leadership for your organizations, but also personal exploration and figuring out you know, what really does make some individuals tick and what can we all continue to learn to help us improve in our daily lives. So really excited to continue with some of these interesting episodes as we move forward throughout the year. So I want to go ahead and jump into this episode of the podcast in an effort to uh, continually shrink the size. Uh, I think one hour of the podcast is far too long. So we'll also continue over time to evolve by making this a shorter format so that it's something that can be easily listened to as you're out for a run, out for a walk, or in your car and driving uh, while we're a captive audience. That's always, for me, I found the best time to listen to a podcast. So this week's conversation is with John Ferrari. I'll introduce him as we get into the clip with him, but I think you'll see that he has a wide variety of experiences which has helped him chart a path uh, in the innovation culture. And so, of course, when you think about innovation, that could be a wide variety of organizations. But in this one in particular, it's kind of one of my primary interest areas, which is cybersecurity, artificial intelligence. Where are we going in this information environment? And I think that applies to all of us. I mean, you could be in Hollywood. You can be in any industry. You could be in the military. And information is now underpinning the success 
of darn near every single type of environment, type of corporate culture, as we look not only to the present day, but into the future. So here we go with a conversation with John Ferrari. John, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, I've been really excited uh, to have you on because as I'm looking at your bio, you have an incredibly diverse background, uh, full of experiences that align very well with not only the, the theme of this show, right, which is the intersection of national security and technology and policy, but it's also very much in alignment with where our listeners uh, are fascinated by, you know, cybersecurity and elsewhere. So uh, for those listening, uh, John Ferrari, he's a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where his work focuses on everything from the defense budget to defense reform and acquisition, as well as the U.S. military writ large. And then concurrently, he's also serving as the chief administrative officer for Complex, a data analytics and cybersecurity firm. So that's his day job in the current uh, realm, but he also has had a 32-year U.S. Army career. He's a retired major general, and he had a lot of diverse experiences while he was in the Army. He did everything from serving as director of program analysis and evaluation. He was the commanding general for the White Sands Missile Range. He served overseas uh, with NATO. He's worked uh, uh, and had a hand in Operation Iraqi Freedom, and he grew up as a cavalry officer in the U.S. Army. Uh, as a West Point graduate, he has a degree in computer science. He'd also got his Master of Arts in National Resource Strategy and Policy from what is now known as the Eisenhower School for National Security and Resource Strategy. And he also has another master's degree, an MBA in Finance and Strategic Management from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. So we can obviously see from that very long distinguished bio, you've had a, a not only operational experiences throughout your tenure in the US Army, you've had joint experience, uh, everything from acquisitions. And of course, now since you've been retired, uh, you're on the cutting edge of everything from analytics, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and cybersecurity. And of course, cybersecurity is on everyone's mind. So I think I'd like to start there and just ask you, you know, what are your thoughts about the recent news we've seen with the uh, Solar Winds hack, of course, there are other companies involved, but th that's kind of been the the going name for it. It is, and uh, I think it just goes to show that you've got to be very careful in actually knowing who's in your network. One of the one of the ways cyber hackers get in is to be able to go into your network and convince the network that they belong there. Right? It's called Active Directory, which controls right the master directory of who's who. And once you can convince the network that you belong there, which is essentially what happened with SolarWinds, they came in riding on a SolarWinds patch, uh, then you have control of the network and can do what you want and you go undetected because nobody's looking for people who are supposed to be there. And so it's a, it's a very difficult problem to solve. Yeah, uh, one thing that it has kind of reminded me of just because it has been a widespread attack with multiple attack vectors uh, and also the fact that, that the Russians, where it's been attributed to, Mm -hmm. uh, not only infiltrated solar winds, but they use that as a vehicle and as a vector um, to access the software package that solar winds provides to a host of other companies. So if you kind of go to that watering hole and you're able to infiltrate there, that then gets propagated. And, it's, and it, while it's a very different vector, it reminds me of the same type of approach that was used with the previous RSA key hack, where uh, a nation state was able to go in and infiltrate into the RSA key system, which serves as security and kind of that uh, point of entry security. And because they were able to, to steal the keys to the kingdom, that gained access into other companies like Lockheed Martin and, uh, and others, which we saw uh, proliferate widely uh, through the national security sector. And those hacks are very effective because it's very hard to find the needle 
that's you know a piece of hay that's in a that's in a haystack of haystacks. Uh, computationally, the data and the power needed to do that, and that's what one of the things Complex actually does very well and is our leading product right now is right the ability to to detect when your Active Directory has been hacked, and it's uh, the the platform that the founders developed was custom built uh, to handle large amounts of data, right? So if you think of kind of data on the battlefield, data in real life, the internet of things, right? It's like a, like a constant Niagara fall of continuously flowing data. Well, the question is, how do you manage that? How do you manage the risk around that? Uh, and so it's, you know, in the old days, the insurance company, you managed the, you know, it was, you know, against the gods, right? So you were betting against the gods. Now risk is managed with your data, right? So how do you manage the risk and how, how can you sift through all that? And it's computationally and uh, mathematically a difficult task. And so, uh, but that's the future. That's where everything's going. Yeah. In, in one of the previous episodes, we've had uh, twice uh, now, we had Admiral Mike Rogers, who was the former director for the National Security Agency. And in that role, concurrently served as the commander of U.S. Cyber Command. And, uh, you know, like you said, computationally and mathematically, it's such a challenging problem, not only because of where we are today, but just that massive proliferation of access to a network, and that could be anything uh, to the internet of things, but also just storage has become so inexpensive. Right. And so when you couple, I remember being at MIT back in the 1998 to 2000 timeframe, and that was kind of at the heyday of where everyone was really touting big data. And it was this ability to store massive quantities of information, but you didn't really yet have the processing power available, nor the analytic capability through algorithms uh, and such that you could you could do any kind of effective search. But you've seen now you've kind of got that trifecta in place. So whether it's, you know, it used to be probably limited to nation states, organizations like NSA and others who could warehouse and, and manage massive amounts of information, but computational power has become so accessible. And we've seen where analytic approaches and algorithmic approaches like ResNet 50 and YOLO V2 and other things used for artificial intelligence and machine learning are open source, they're widely available. So you could you could take a relatively, the barrier to entry, I guess, has been lowered significantly to be able to accumulate a lot of information and then mine it for insights and the ability to use it. Yeah, we like to say that uh, when data is cheap, your time is expensive because right, trying to mine that becomes really, really hard. And if you think of the battlefield and the proliferation of sensors and the, the battlefield of things, Right. How do you know what you're looking at, especially when somebody's going to come in and try to put a thing in there to deceive you? Right. And so one of the things in the uh, in the military that's not really talked about a lot is deception in the age of AI. And so if you kind of go back all the way to, you know, the start of recorded history. Right. The Trojan horse in Troy. And right. They snuck the horse in there. And what do we call something that's snuck in on your email? A Trojan horse. So we've come full circle. But we as a nation and as a military don't really like to deal with deception and how to deceive. And so that's a, that's kind of a blind spot that we've got, right? What happens when somebody tries to digitally groom your algorithms? Yeah, I know that was a, a real big challenge that uh, even came to the Secretary of Defense's level when I was working with Secretary Mattis. Uh, we had several briefings on adversarial AI and it was everything from like you just mentioned, a competitor or an adversary's mm -hmm. desire to want to infiltrate your training process so you could skew the algorithm. Or if you had a fairly high degree of confidence of how that algorithm was created in the first place, maybe you didn't skew it, but you know how to spoof it. You know how to provide false flags or false information that would lead to a right. erroneous overall result. So 
yeah, I mean, I can only imagine just the sheer explosion that there's going to be in data centric approaches and operational approaches as we move forward, and especially with uh, psychological operations and everything else uh, into the future. One area that I really wanted to, to tackle with you as well, because of your expertise and your background, but also where you reside right now as, as someone who is working at AEI, um, you know, you've got some amazing people over there right now. You've got Corey Shockey, you've got uh, Mackenzie Eaglin, who I've worked with numerous times in the past. I had a chance in the luxury of working with uh, Elaine McCusker when she was uh, working as the deputy comptroller at that point before she became the acting comptroller. Incredibly smart people. And kind of that common thread in there is just a really smart and insightful look at the overall defense strategy problem, but also how the budget plays into that. And I'm curious, as you contemplate the incoming Biden administration, as we see more and more individuals confirmed for that administration, what do you think, you know, do you have a prediction at this point for national security budgets and, and what that's going to do to impact Secretary Austin as he seeks to refresh the national defense strategy? Yeah, so I'm humbled every, every day I get to interact with the team at AEI because Corey has really put together a fabulous group of people and Mackenzie and Giselle and Gary Smith and everybody else. Uh, and th that's the thing that's dominating the discussion over there within the defense circles now. And they've built out a kind of budget calculator that people can go in and, you know, say, okay, let's cut the defense budget by 5%. And then you can go in and play with the force structure and, and put a strategy in, right? Do you want to tilt the China? Do you want to do Russia? Do you want to take risk and counterinsurgency? And so they're working through those, that calculator now uh, in order to help inform that debate. And they, they're putting some thought into uh, what their recommendation would be if you had to take a, a defense cut. As to your question, you know, what do I predict, right? It's always hard to figure out how the, because, right, the, the, the President Biden gets a vote, but so does the Congress. Uh, it, but you can, there's a lot of pressure. If you believe the, the chairs of the armed services committees, right, who are both Democrats, right, they believe there's going to be pressure to cut the defense budget by some percentage. Uh, and there's also going to be pressure within defense to move more towards some of the administration priorities, such as clean energy on the battlefield uh, and other things. And, and so I think that, you know, there's going to be a downward pressure uh, in defense, and it's cyclical in nature, and it comes all the time. So uh, defense will have to have to sort through that with the new team. When you mentioned downward pressure on defense, you know, based on your background and experience in working these issues, and of course, being there and established in Washington, D.C., you know, it's, a, it's actually a surprisingly small circle of individuals who, who have a defense focus. And it seems like everyone kind of knows everyone else, uh, which is great because it means like there, there does tend to be a consensus view on stuff like the defense budgets. Do you, do you think that that would serve as a catalyst for defense innovation? Uh, one of the things we saw during the Budget Control Act period of time, as well as concurrent sequestration, was it put tremendous pressure, not only on readiness and personnel, but it also, it started to turn the rudder such that you were gonna have, it felt like more investment in kind of those leading edge technologies, areas where you might get more bang for your buck. So moving away from, incredibly capital intensive elements like a, uh, an aircraft carrier and a very large carrier air wing, but maybe more towards cyber or more towards, uh, you know, non-kinetic forces or hypersonics. Do you, you know, and then of course, as the budget got restored under the Trump administration, there was a rush back towards that conventional warfare capability. But do you think that with the Biden administration, if there is downward pressure on the budget, that that might provide 
uh, an impetus, a, a desire to say, look, we've got to change the way that the US military conducts business. We have to be able to work in a way that not only meets the needs of the mission and the combatant commanders, but also is sustainable for our force and our force structure. I hope so. And uh, there are two points, right? So I'm a bit of a contrarian on this. Uh, so when people frame this as a current readiness versus future modernization, I think they do the nation a, a tremendous disservice because we're asking, you know, 18 year old men and women to join the military today and to kind of say, hey, but you know, we're gonna take a little pause on readiness today so we can be ready in the future. That has never turned out well from us, you know, from, you know, from, from Kayserine Pass, right? Uh, the disaster we had there to Task Force Smith to Desert One, right? We put too much risk on the back of our 18 year olds and, and, it, and it kind of belies the fact then we tell our adversaries, hey, we're going to take a little break now. You know, we'll be back in 10 years stronger. Please don't, you know, cause problems throughout the world. So, so I think that whatever decisions are made has to preserve the current readiness of the force and, and a trained and ready force has to be at the top of the agenda. As far as modernization, we, we, tend, not, we tend to focus on invention over innovation. And invention is when you have to go out there and create something that doesn't exist. And those are when you get those big monster 10-year defense programs. And that enables people to say, well, I'm starting this. Look, I solved the problem, but it'll be 10 years, right? I don't know where I'll be 10 years from now, but I won't be here. If you look at the commercial sector and you look at the innovation that's occurred in the past 20 years, right, and what's happened, the transformation in the U.S. economy, it's been about innovation, putting things together that exist today to do it. First of all, it's less risky, it's less costly, and you leverage everything that's out there already and you can iterate and spin faster. And so if you look at the Army's wheeled vehicle fleet, right, it's the best that the 1990s have to offer, right? It's an internal combustion engine, it's got some wheels, some steel, and that's it. Everything from the, the joint light tactical vehicle to the Humvee. But go look at what a Tesla does or a GM Hummer, right? And I'm doing some work for General Motors Defense in full disclosure. But the, hum, the, the Hummer, the commercial version of it, like does, it does crab, it goes sideways. It's got automatic driving in it and all sorts of, of technology that's completely and utterly missing from the defense. And so I think if the administration focuses on less costly and less risky innovation, rather than long modernization programs, then you don't have to you don't have to sacrifice the current readiness of the force to do that. Yeah, it's it's fascinating you mentioned that. Uh, right before we conducted this interview, I was I was talking with a longtime friend of mine, a guy named uh, Ben Van Buskirk. He's a Navy captain, and he's been working within the Navy, uh, the operational or the OPNAV staff at the Pentagon on a lot of this innovation work. And then his next job will take him into a uh, a group called Naval X, which is also dedicated to innovation within the Navy and helping to foster that. And I love what you just said, which is that so many, so often large organizations perceive this need to, okay, we're gonna have to make large capital investments to invent the solution that we're trying to achieve. And it's gonna be a long time frame uh, when that's what has made a lot of commercial companies and organizations incredibly successful is the ability to take things that are already available off the shelf and you just put them together in innovative ways. So I'm really glad you called that out because I think that that is critically important as we think about ways to modernize the military. We're not talking about something that was going to require billions of dollars. It's just actually coming up with a, 
uh, a strategy and a plan to do so. And you could do it in a fairly cost efficient manner, but it could make huge gains for, you know, different branches of the armed services or the Department of Defense and intelligence communities at large. And if you look at the Palantir, for example, has a larger market capitalization than Northrop has for a fraction of the revenue. So you can see where the U.S. civil economy is going. And so the defense economy needs to, and the defense system needs to make it much more user-friendly for these non-traditional defense firms to innovate quickly. Because the non-traditional defense firms can't spend years burning through cash to put a program together, right? They need, they need to be selling you know, much more quickly. And I, I think there's a way to do that. Uh, and so we, we've got to work our way through that. You know, we we referenced your work at AEI. We referenced one of your uh, co-workers there, Mackenzie Eaglin, who I'm a big fan of. You and her, you, you just published an article about, uh, you know, titled Teslas for Everyone in the Army. Why don't you tell us real quick what that was about and, and your point there? Because I think that ties directly into this conversation we're having right now about innovation. Yeah, it does, right? So electric vehicles exist today, right? So the military right now, the Army is spending a lot of time and effort trying to figure out how to do combat vehicles that are electric. Right, so it's picked a very hard use case to try to solve. Well, why why start there with the hard one, right? If General Motors, Tesla, Ford have already done electric vehicles, why not take the current wheel fleet and do that? The other piece to that is if you look at Tesla, Tesla is essentially a software system that they built a car around. The Army is still trying to build a a next or try to trying to produce its joint like tactical vehicle in a Hummer instead of starting with the software that already exists because Tesla and these other companies have them and the electric batteries and then putting the frame around it. So it it shouldn't take years for the army to produce a, its version of, of the Humvee or the joint light tactical vehicle that's electric. And if you look at the new administration wanting to push into electric vehicles, Right. What better way to do it than to say, okay, hey, Army, you're, for your wheeled fleet, you're not going to buy any more diesel engines, right? Go electric. Now, people say, well, you don't know how to refuel them on the battlefield. We'll work through that. But remember, the Army's got 100,000 plus wheeled vehicles. So it's not like the internal combustion engine is going to disappear, right? You'll replace them a couple of thousand a year. But that would drive down the cost of that technology and accelerate it. The one thing the military does do better than the civilian sector is security of IT systems, right? Because it wakes up every day wondering who's going to hack in. And so if the military were using these software systems inside of its wheeled fleet, that would push then the commercial sector to up its standards on security to make sure that, you know, a SolarWinds, you know, event doesn't happen to the, to the car industry. Yeah, I like how you mentioned that if you engage the military to produce some material at scale, that that can also have the private sector benefit of driving down costs, um, you know, identifying additional areas of risk that could be bought down as you make the transition either from military to private or private back to military sector. And it reminds me of, of some of the uh, work at Los Alamos National Labs where, you know, the national lab would come up with a really neat invention, but then you could, you could mass produce it much easier outside of the lab space. You could operationalize it. Uh, you know, by by moving it to a commercial corporation and, and a similar type of a construct exists here. You know, one thing that uh, that is always a, and I guess I'll say that it's just a hindrance, is the acquisition system is so arcane. There are so many hoops you have to go through, so many milestones that has been cited for a very long time by 
by senior members of the national security community and people who've been acquisition professionals as, as being an impediment to rapid adoption of emerging technology. And we saw in recent years, the rise of something known as other transactional authority, OTAs, which was a way to try to accelerate the pathway to technological change. I know Dr. Will Roper, when he was serving as Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Acquisitions, was, was uh, kind of on that leading edge of using OTAs as a vehicle to bring in non-traditional defense contractors to help the military develop programs. But you know, do you see, is there a pathway that is workable for acquisitions to be reformed in order to help speed along the process, speed along the development efforts to actually bring on some of this material? Because I do think you can find ways to innovate more rapidly, but the danger still exists that to try to produce and purchase at scale would likely require some modifications to the acquisition system. Yeah, so the great case study in that is the Army's augmented reality system called IVAS, the Indiv Individual Virtual Augmented System. So that program was born a couple of years ago out of the ashes of a failed program called uh, the, the Warfighter Information Network, where the Army was trying to essentially to build its own network down to the tactical edge. When that program eventually blew up, it, it created space for the Army to use the OTA authority with Microsoft. And Microsoft bought its gaming technology and virtual reality and cloud technology. And it didn't go through a typical requirements acquisition system. Microsoft showed up in the field that put their programmers with the soldiers and the soldiers and the engineers built what is a, a, the next generation command and control system for the army, essentially because now every soldier now has that 3D technology that you have in games powered by the cloud. It's the most modern technology uh, and it's changing the way things are done. A great example, there was recently a story where a soldier said, hey, I got this IVAS thing. It, it took me like a few hours to learn because I was used to all the command and control, right? How it works, it's just like my video game. When I tried to shoot, right, I couldn't shoot the way the army taught me. I had to invent a new way to shoot the weapon. And it said, it took us about half a day, but we figured it out. So that's innovation of tactics and procedures. If it had gone through the normal system, the army would have said, the requirement is the soldiers have to be able to shoot in accordance with AR XYZ, right? And we would have designed the system to fit the way that we learned to shoot in World War II. But here it was, we had innovation of commercial gaming technology, innovation of Microsoft's cloud with software programmers, with soldiers that are redefining how the infantry operates on the battlefield and bringing a technology that exists today to the force today, not 10 years from now. And if you believe in the way social media and Facebook work and Google, that it's a bottom up revolution of content, the military has been essentially trying for the last 30 years to build its command and control system from the top down. If you believe bottom up is the way to go, then what Microsoft and the Army have built is the foundation for what could become the command and control system, because now all you have to do is aggregate that information up, which is an easier task than starting with a system at the top and then trying to expand it down. And so there's a system where a non-traditional defense company, OTA authority, no requirements, soldiers and software programmers got together and are innovating, not inventing. Yeah, and I think you're right. I mean, there, there are certainly ways to circumvent a large system and to accelerate that pace of change. 
Uh, it just seems like it'd be great if we could find a way to reform the existing system so that status quo for most large programs starts to look more like what you just described rather than the decades long acquisition process. And especially, you know, one of the things, uh, a former boss of mine was the chief of naval operations, a guy named Admiral Jonathan Greener. And I loved when he would go around and he'd speak about innovation because he'd talk about the Navy had long been in the business of wanting to design an iPhone, right? Design a phone. And then he would always say, but look, you know, now we're at the phase where we have an iPhone and, and what makes technology like that so so amazing is that you can just des- develop the specific application that you want, right? So uh, you, you create this marketplace, you can bring innovative teams together and they create their own unique apps. And so, yes, the phone goes through an incremental change. And we've seen that with uh, certain you know, phones that massive change around 2008 to 2010. And then since then, it's largely been just iteration of a really good design idea, but the applications just continue to, to diversify by leaps and bounds. And I always liked the way he put that, but at the same time, I think if you just can't find a way to, to alter and to bring the acquisition system more in alignment with the, with the pace of change, the pace of technology, that uh, it's going to find ways to, to stymie efforts. Because otherwise, it's, it's like playing whack-a-mole, where you're trying to find uh, the critical problem where you can use something like an OTA authority to, or an OTA to move out on it, whereas uh, you're still being left behind with some of these more, some of these larger programs. Yeah, and so for both the Congress and the new administration, right, you are what you reward. And so they have an opportunity to reward those programs and punish and take away the funding from those other, right? If you come in with a program that doesn't deliver for five or 10 years, right, you just don't approve it. And you start rewarding those kind of innovative near-term programs. And as they succeed, then you add more money to them, right? And it's kind of like using option theory to reinforce things. And you can start a lot more programs then and see what works and what doesn't. If you look at the commercial sector, right, lots of companies are formed and then they fail because the idea just didn't work. And you're never quite sure which ones those are. The problem with DOD is it wants to know which ones are going to work and at the beginning, and you just don't know. And so you accept a little bit of risk up front for a lot of reward down the back end. You know, one of the things we kind of touched on throughout our conversation was cybersecurity. And so, of course, your work at Complex is is very germane to that type of discussion. You know, certainly, uh, as we discussed, when everything is becoming increasingly digital in nature, interconnected, multiple attack vectors being opened, uh, you know, basically you're taking the digital surface contact area and you're exponentially increasing it. Mm-hmm. So when we start talking about those types of changes where the services have identified the desire and the need to build this massive complex of interconnected networks in order to, to digitally control the battle space. We have uh, joint weapons now that can be retargeted in flight using uh, networks like what's called Link 16 and others. Um, you, you know, there, and, and also disaggregated forces. You know, the U.S. Navy is always a good example of this, or the Army and Special Forces when they operate in a forward position. Uh, that sometimes, you know, you have contact with the cloud severed and you lose that ability to reach back. So as we go to this increasingly digital force, how concerned are you because of, uh, you know, what we started with, the solar winds hack, the ability for other competitors, other adversaries, other just simply interested parties, and this could be an individual in their basement, who seeks to try to either infiltrate, to uh, take information, to, you know, I know one of the things that people express a lot of concern about is someone who could infiltrate the network and then put, pump in bad information or faulty mm-hmm. information, uh, redirect supply chain. So 
you know, are we, in some respects, are we moving so quickly into this future force that we're creating one giant Achilles heel? Yeah, so uh, we're, we're going to move into this future digital force, whether we want to or not, and our adversary is going to either be, is going to be there before us if we're not careful. So part of it is, right, you have to decide how you're going to defend and manage risk, right? Because you're never going to perfectly defend. So it's a risk management exercise. And if you think about Iraq or Afghanistan, right, you would put a fob up and you'd put a big fence around it. And then you'd try to screen everybody coming in and manage the risk. And you could walk around in your patrol cap and without any body armor. But that was a real assumption that you could screen who's coming in and who's not, right? Uh, but when you go out on patrol, right, you put the armor on and you kind of bolt yourself in and you move out and assume that everybody around you, that, that it's a dangerous area. So within DOD, the debate always is, do you protect the network or do you protect the data, right? And I think that the problem is we've spent the last 30 years trying to protect the network and spent a lot of money and effort and lulled ourselves into a false sense of security that if you're in the network, right, everything is good, right? You should just assume that right? The bad people are in the network, right? They're there. So then the question is, how do you protect the data, right? And that's where you start using encryption and keys and moving the packets around uh, in order to protect the data. That's a fundamentally very different approach to how you operate. And you can see adversaries doing that, right? WhatsApp and, and, and big debates over encrypted apps and who has the key, right? So a lot of the adversaries are, and, and the, the terrorists and nefarious actors don't care that anybody's listening to the network. They assume you're in, right? What they now use is point-to-point -point encryption, right? And, and that's really hard. And so I think we have to fundamentally look at adapting that type of architecture to do that. On your point of corrupting the data and, and deception and field, right, that gets back to you. That's a huge problem that we don't like to talk about because as you know, right, even during the Iraq war, with networks and communication moving so fast, the, right, the ability for us to deceive adversarial AI is really restricted at the moment because we really aren't good at pumping out false information that can blow back into the United States with everything connected. So we, we're going to have to solve that because otherwise that's, a, that's as big a problem as the enemy trying to deceive us. Yeah, it's that's fascinating because uh, kind of two thoughts come to mind. One is, I think you raise a good point that not that doesn't come up in a lot of conversations, and that's this concept of do you defend the network and the infrastructure, and it's a little bit of a uh, walled garden so that everything inside of that walled garden is is assumed to be fine, or do you protect the data? And when you said that, my mind kind of immediately went to the computer I'm using to host this conversation in this podcast. You know, I'm using an Apple MacBook, and they've got. Uh, file vault, right? Where it encrypts your data at rest. Uh, if the if the laptop itself, if someone walks off with it, mm -hmm. then no one can get access to your data because to your point, it's been encrypted. Uh, and so that's fascinating, like you said, when you can pull in some of those uh, more common techniques so that, hey, it, it would be almost a fool's errand to to spend a lot of time, effort and money to defend your network in such a way that you'll never be 100% secure. You know, when I, when, uh, I had written a a paper before that was expo you know, taking a look at how do you effectively do deterrence in the cyber age. Uh, and the reality is it's, it's incredibly difficult because right now there really is no uh, severe punishment for those who are seeking to infiltrate networks, exfiltrate information, right? I mean, if you're, uh, just as an example, right? If you're a Chinese hacker sitting in a cyber cafe in Beijing and you're able to break into our systems, there's really nothing we can do to punish you. 
Um, it's not like the 1960s, 70s, 80s Cold War, where you had to actually physically gain access. And if you're caught, you're tried as a spy or you're in prison. I mean, like, so the, so the punishment that's available there is significantly less. Um, the other element uh, that you brought up that I think is just kind of fascinating is, is this fact that, like you said, we're, we're moving so quickly into the future that it's really about risk management. And it's, it's great to hear you say that because when I've listened to a lot of other senior leaders, either in industry or the Department of Defense talk, that's exactly what they talk about all the time. And that is, you can never eliminate all risk, but what kind of risk is acceptable? Uh, how do you minimize uh, you know, to a realistic cost or to a realistic point? Um, the risks you're willing to assume so that you can accomplish the mission, but minimize, like you said, blowback. So I think those are two really interesting points for listeners to contemplate. And, you know, we turn the management of risk on the network to over to the IT professionals where it doesn't really belong. And it wasn't until the pandemic that even the Pentagon could use modern tools such as Zoom right, to talk to people. So think about that. Right. And, and if it wasn't for the pandemic, they still wouldn't be able to use it. Right. And so we've got to be able to let the operators make those risk decisions, but then, right, using encryption and walls, right, you, right, you, you kind of isolate the risk and you manage it going forward because the enemy is going to do that. Right. And so we, we've got to figure out we, we can't just exist in this walled garden where one person's responsible for risk of the whole perimeter and everybody else, you know, kind of doesn't worry about it. You know, so as we get towards the tail end of our time, I'm, I'm very curious, you know, I had some some areas of interest that I really wanted to dive into with you. But, you know, what are the things you're involved with right now that you either find to be incredibly interesting or um, that you think that, you know, it's kind of an area that people aren't talking much about, but we should be? Yeah, so I think the creative destruction within the Defense Department needs to accelerate. Uh, when you think, look at Sears and Amazon. Sears in the 1960s could deliver a house, right, through, through a catalog, essentially e-commerce. So how is it that Amazon came around in the late 1990s and is now worth a trillion dollars and Sears is bankrupt when Sears was doing what Amazon did way back when? And fundamentally, right, Sears had better access to capital. It had better access to labor and had better access to land and facilities. Amazon reimagined the Sears business, essentially, right? It said, if I take the big Sears uh, buildings that sell things and I instead put some robots in there and then push it out and put some IT on top of that, we can reinvent global commerce. What I worry about today is, right, we're, in some ways, the Defense Department and the military is still stuck in Desert Storm, right? That's where I came of age as a lieutenant, right, with the network-centric warfare, top-down, and we haven't reinvented ourselves for this kind of bottoms-up revolution in information technology. And we don't really have the labor force. We haven't grown the people who are comfortable in programming and mathematics to do that. And so we've got to be very careful because internally within DOD, we don't let the big business enterprises get disrupted internally. So the Defense Logistics Agency, the Information Systems Agency, the health, right? They keep moving on, whereas in the outside world, we allow this creative destruction to occur. In the military, unfortunately, creative destruction occurs from another nation state or you know, nefarious actors. And so we've got to creatively destroy our systems before our adversary does that to us, uh, because that market mechanism is 
missing and it's scary and you've got to take risk and you've got to be there for a while. And that's what makes it hard in DOD because there's not a lot of people who really understand how those pieces fit together. And so you become risk averse in making change because you might break something. Uh, and so I think we've got to overcome that because there's two tails to risk, right? There's the, the risk you break something, but there's also the risk you don't fix it and then you lose. And unfortunately, as you know, I talked about when we started, when we lose, the people who bear that cost are the young men and women who are 18 years old, right? They bear the entire burden of bad decisions in modernizing defense. And we saw that, you know, when the Secretary of Defense in uh, 2003, 2004 said, you go to war with the army you have, not the army you wish you had, right? That's not something if you're somebody charged with building the military, that's not something you want on your support. I mean, essentially, you're telling the soldiers, hey, too bad, you got what you got. We've got to avoid that and focus more on the present. And if you focus on the present and current readiness, and how do you bring in all that innovation today? I think we will become much more advanced in the future than if we make the trade about how do we cut things today to be ready in the future? And that to me is the central discussion that we don't have uh, that needs to be had. Well, there's look, there's also a, uh, we didn't say it explicitly, but there's a culture there within the US military as well, the national security community. And, and, I, and I witnessed this a lot as I was growing up in the naval aviation community. Um, and that is a lot of times the more senior you become, and I'm not sure if you would agree with this because of course you reached general officer status, I did not. But it's one of those things where um, it seems like the longer you're in, there, there's this almost like a need to demonstrate success. And to your point, you could red team, you could do a lot of things that would lend itself towards creative destruction. But I think there's always this innate fear that even though you're doing it for the right reasons, it could to an outside observer look like, oh, wow, you, you failed or something didn't go the way it should have. That reflects upon you. And so therefore, there's potentially too much personal or professional risk to take that to take that step. I mean, do you think that that is a fair statement? I mean, obviously, it's a very broad brush statement because I've run across plenty of officers that I served alongside, senior enlisted, senior officers uh, who were willing to challenge the status quo, were willing to take that, that risk. But I've also seen uh, a significant group of, of the opposite type where, um, you know, you would, you, would, you would whitewash the results or you would want to make things look their very best, whether it was to your team, to the American public or to uh, members of Congress, because you wanted to keep the funding going or you wanted to you know, preserve your path forward. So I'm kind of curious, like if it's such a, if there is a cultural aspect to it, how would we shape the US military and its leaders to more closely embrace this concept of creative destruction? So I think it's less the, the topic that you said about people wanting to whitewash and look at success and more that people's experiences become the internal data that you've had over a 30-year career, drive your internal algorithms that shape the way you view the world. And that is good in a period of status quo or when those algorithms were specific to that domain that you were in. You rely on that experience and you hear a lot of in the military, right? My gut told me to do this. Well, essentially, that's just a large AI algorithm in your brain taking all your experiences and data and coming up with an answer that makes sense to you. That doesn't work as well in periods of disruptive change because your experiences no longer 
Can you rely on them to make an accurate prediction of where you're going? That's one of the reasons Sears failed, right? Because Sears was so, right, when they were running data analytics within Sears, it was, do I move the lawnmowers from aisle 14 to aisle 12? And that was a big decision. And you've seen in the Pentagon, people will have these big debates over what many people say isn't even the real issue. The real issue in Sears wasn't whether the lawnmowers were in aisle 14 or aisle 12. It was stop having people come to the store and deliver to them. And But Jeff Bezos and Amazon figured that out because their algorithms, right, their internal experiences were very much different in shape. And so they could see this new path because they didn't have this history of data internally built up. And so that's the challenge within DOD. And that's why that creative destruction, right, when you, if, if you perpetuate promotions of people with similar skill sets, you don't have that diversity of experience. But that's why IVAS worked, right? So the people with the experience didn't get involved. We took the software programmers from Microsoft and soldiers today and put them together and said, go figure this out. And that's where the key to success is. But that takes an enormous amount of trust. And really it also takes you as a senior leader to go, I don't know the answer. All my experiences have taught me the wrong things to do. And so what I'm gonna do is, is allow this to be sorted out down below uh, and let, let the younger, the, the, the people with let different experiences do that. And so I think that's the, the challenge, right? When you bring in too many experts and you make decisions centrally in the Pentagon versus decentrally in the field, that's what you wind up with. Whatever the experience, right? You can almost look at it. Go look at the experience of the senior leadership and you can predict the answer. And so it shouldn't be a surprise, right? Uh, and that's why innovation doesn't really occur in the Pentagon, right? Because it's predictable. People are, are making decisions based upon their own experiences. Well, John, I've really appreciated this uh, conversation with you. And especially I can already, and our listeners can tell based on your broad base of experience and what you're doing now, you know, the ability to bring that to bear. And, and I, you know, as we were talking, I was jotting down some notes because you said some things that I thought were, were, were genuinely profound that are not only in alignment with this podcast themes, but that I'm going to want to think about as I move forward. And that's everything from the importance of trust and humility in leadership, because that gets to your point about humility being important to recognize that my experience base may not be the most appropriate or the most, um, you know, it's going to make me less ideal of an individual to, to chart this path forward, especially during a time of creative destruction. So I need to sur surround myself with people who would be uh, best positioned. I also liked what you said about the importance of managing risk uh, for leaders in any type of organization, specifically here with the difference between defending your networks versus defending the data. Uh, I thought the, the discussion on creative destruction was terrific. And I specifically liked that point you made about Sears versus Amazon. Uh, it reminded me a lot of a uh, former Harvard professor, a guy named Clayton Christensen, who passed away last year, but he'd written a great book about the innovators' dilemma and why is it that a lot of organizations that have been around for for a long time, as they mature, suddenly lose that innovative capability. They they become the status quo, and that opens the door for disruptive, much smaller and more innovative organizations to rapidly overtake them. And that I think is in alignment with what you mentioned between Amazon with in-home shipping and the ability to make access to goods so much easier for those who are seeking them than Sears did. And then I, I loved your quote at the very beginning of the program that was when data is cheap, your time is expensive. And I think that's a great 
kind of a way to wrap up is just kind of recounting some of the things you shared with us. But I love the fact that, you know, when someone drops a saying like that, because it really, it really does challenge the status quo. I mean, when you can have access to so much data, that means there's a lot more you have to pour through. So what kind of systems can you put in place to help, help re-accelerate that? And that immediately reminds me of some of the work that Colonel Kukor and others and General Jack Shanahan had done at the Pentagon with Operation Maven, uh, or excuse me, Project Maven, and also with uh, the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center. So a lot of really cool lines of intersection with some previous stuff here. Uh, and thank you very much for joining on the show this, for this episode. Yeah, and thank you for what you're doing, right? Because you're contributing to a great body of knowledge that's helping to move things forward. And so uh, thanks for what you're doing and uh, to all your listeners for listening. Thanks. Absolutely. Well, I look forward to a future conversation with you. And this has been uh, retired U.S. Army General John Ferrari, uh, who's not only working right now uh, as a non-resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, but is also working as the chief administrative officer at Complex, a cybersecurity firm located in the Washington, D.C. area. So again, John, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this latest episode of Holding the Line. If you enjoyed the episode, if you're enjoying the show, go ahead and just take a quick second give a five-star review. Uh, even if you don't want to write a review, just click the five stars. Always appreciate it, and it helps keep this podcast going. With that being said, enjoy the remainder of your week and into the weekend, and I'll look forward to having a conversation next week with retired U.S. Navy Admiral Jim Stavridis, who has a brand new book, 2034, coming out. We'll also have a chance to talk to him about some of the core leadership lessons, most importantly, that he's picked up throughout the entirety of his career, both in uniform and I think more importantly, since he has left uniform and has entered the private sector. So enjoy your week and we'll catch you next week.